podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching through Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, and the sermon title is, The Kingdom of God is Here. We hope you are blessed by the message today. I'm going to now go into our scripture reading of Daniel chapter 7. As uh, Joel and the other elders that mentioned in our group chat, we're going to be spending a lot of time in Daniel chapter 7, so be familiar with this. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 14. And I don't hear any pages, so I assume everyone's on their phone, so I will just start reading. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this thorn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked, then became of the, uh, then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came, like, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, if you don't teach us today, then uh, really we have, we have no way of making any sense of this text, let alone applying it to our lives or 
understanding the future or all these great and awesome things. We, we, our greatest desire today is that you would teach us. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Lead us. Take this text that can be confusing at surface level and point us to Christ and the kingdom. Lord, reveal mysteries. Do what only you can do, our sovereign God of heaven and earth. And I pray that uh, today every heart would be turned and every attention would be given to you, Lord, that our eyes would be lifted to heaven, that you would settle our hearts, be sure that we each know which kingdom we are a part of, kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world. And I pray that you would speak to us, Lord. That is our desire. Grow us, strengthen this church, convict us of sin. We love you, Lord. Thank you. Letting, like, just letting us be here is such a privilege. And uh, we, we glorify you and we thank you in Jesus', Jesus name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, quite a task, everyone. And you, if you've been listening to our inter-church chats, like, like Josh said, we are we're going to spend the next six weeks in Daniel chapter 7. And uh, that may seem like it's belaboring a point. Trust me, it's not. It's, uh, there's enough here. Daniel 7 is considered to be the, the pinnacle in many ways of the entire book of Daniel and so many scriptures in the New Testament and truths of the New Testament point us to some of these things that we've already read here in, in chapter 7. So we are not taking this task lightly. When I say we, I mean myself and the other teaching elders that will be taking our time through this series. Um, like I said, it'll be six, six parts, including today. And uh, these are going to be some really important foundational groundworking uh, pieces that help us to understand and study eschatology. Now, if we've said that word here before from the pulpit, but in case you're not sure what eschatology is, it's the study of the end times or the study of the last things. When people are studying eschatology, they're looking to the events that should sort of fold up and wrap up our time here uh, on earth and take us into what we call the eternal state, where we will be for eternity. And so that's the study of the last things, but also the study of and, and the understanding of the kingdom of Christ and how it operates in this world. So to do this, we're going to be covering some really popular and also, I would say, interesting topics to most Christians. Even to some non-Christians, these things would be interesting, to say the least. Non-believers think about the end of the world, too. They think about the end. They think about what's happened, what's our purpose, what's the, what does the end of all things look like? And, you, of course, there's speculations and all kinds of stories that have come out. Daniel 7, for instance, opens up conversations for us about the Antichrist, the tribulation, judgment, the suffering of the saints, the second coming of Christ, and the millennial kingdom. Have you ever thought about those things? Yeah, most of you have thought about those. If you've never studied these things or thought about them, this is going to be a great series for you to be thinking, maybe for the first time ever, seriously about eschatology. And I would, I prefer, I prefer to use the word eschatology in the end times, so just so you, that's what I'll probably be using when I refer to that. Now, I know I can speak for the other elders who are going to share in this series. So, Mar, uh, excuse me, myself, John, and Isaac will be sharing in this series, and I can speak for them as well as Mark and Eric as well, that when we teach, we plan to teach from conviction, okay? 
there's a variety of viewpoints on all these things. And we understand that when you, when you preach to a, a congregation that's um, various backgrounds and upbringings and levels of maturity, um, levels of even time in Scripture and studying, that you've drawn certain conclusions yourself. But we must preach here from conviction and even at times, we'll seek to persuade you, maybe, if it seems appropriate to persuade you, but you have our word that it is never our intention to turn an open-handed issue into a gospel issue, okay? Though we are saying we are going to preach convictionally. I'm not going to be like, well, I think this is but a man. I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what I believe. And if we differ on those things, the word that we need to understand is the gospel is what unifies us. Okay? That's, I think that is important. We're all in agreement on that. And we can all just kind of breathe easy here. The most important aspect of this series is that we grow in Christ. Not that we increase our knowledge or our ability to argue with people, but that we grow in Christ. And that we believe his word. That we believe what is being taught to us from scripture. And even more importantly, I'd say, in that we have an unshakable hope in the gospel. That's one thing that's going to happen, especially even from this uh, first part of the series today, that we have an unshakable hope. And I hope that you do have an unshakable hope. If you say you're a Christian, but your hope is shaky, then I think that a study of eschatology and the kingdom of God and the end things are part of what might make you a little bit shaky and nervous about your life, because you're not sure. You're not sure of what the kingdom of God is and what Christ has done. So those are some of the things we're going to look at. My task today in this first part of the series, other than that brief introduction, is I want to talk to you about the, I want to talk about the kingdom of God. I want to talk about kingdom theology. Knowing what the kingdom of God is will help you handle the remaining subjects that we're going to cover. So it's a good place for us to start. And, and also for the rest of Daniel, for that matter. Daniel, the, the rest of Daniel is all prophecy. And uh, we'll cover that in a little bit here. But this takes a turn at Daniel chapter 7 to completely narrative stories that we've seen history, very, very accurate history that we've seen unfold, prophecies of other kings that Daniel has interpreted, but now this is the first dream of Daniel himself. And for the rest of the book, it's a lot of imagery and a lot of prophetic stuff. So, we're going to look at Daniel 7. I want to get some context. And then I'm going to, from that context, we're going to go and we're going to talk about the kingdom of God based on the text that we have before us. So, Daniel chapter 7, you saw in verse 1, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. So we have a time stamp. Right there, at the beginning of Daniel chapter Daniel 7 in verse 1, a timestamp. He receives the first of these three dreams that will happen for the rest of Daniel. He receives the first in the year, or the first year of Belshazzar's reign. So now we're not in any chronological narrative history anymore, but we've made a complete switch to prophetic writing. And, and I'll just say this too. These prophecies are written in the 6th century B.C. That's so important to understand. Because if you open your Bible, then I, I would guess you generally don't turn to Daniel 7 for your morning devotions. But, right, so you open the Bible, you say you're sitting there, you're reading it, and you're going, ah, oh, this is for me, God. This is for me. Now, it is for us. But remember when it was written. 
okay? It's a tendency to plug our century right into the page of Scripture. But what the proper way to exegete and, and to interpret a Scripture is always contextually first, right? So this was written in 6th century B.C., and I think what, what I would like to just say out there in front is that this is not prophecies primarily concerning any of the last two millennia, primarily, although there may be some overflow into prophetic fulfillment and even some yet still in our future, but the majority of what, we're, what is going to be fulfilled from what Daniel sees is future from his perspective. Does that make sense? It's written in the 6th century. These are prophecies that Daniel... So we know they're all future from him, but they're not all future to us. Does that make sense? And, and I think if we were all to say, well, wait a minute, I... But I thought that that's a tendency that we have, especially in America and especially with a lot of the, the movies and the media and the stuff that we, we want everything to be about us. Like Daniel 7, though, that's about us, and it's all for our future. That just doesn't make sense biblically. There's definitely, or they are definitely future from the, the day of Daniel, but not necessarily for our time. Daniel sees, and we're going to just kind of, now please try to keep up. And if I start to speak fast, maybe give me a signal. No, don't do, that'd be weird. Don't give me a signal. Just really try to keep up. And then I'm going to slow down in parts that I, that I really want us to, to get. But try to follow along with this. Daniel sees four distinct beasts rising up out of a sea, all of which are symbolic creatures that represent something. We saw that in the first part of the text. He wrote down the dream, told the sum of the matter, and then in verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. So they represent something, and we have a key. The text also helps us to interpret these things, which is awesome. If you just flash forward to chapter, the same, same chapter, verse 17, Daniel asks the angel the meaning of all of this, and the angel says this, These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. No mystery there. Right? He tells us these are four kings. So now we know these beasts represent kings and therefore kingdoms or empires that we will see. So that's the basic interpretation of these symbols. They represent specific kings over earthly kingdoms. Daniel, we're going to do some jumping around a little bit in Daniel. Daniel has already interpreted a dream for us in chapter 2. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. It was the first great dream that he had that Daniel had opportunity to interpret, and God used him in a great way. Nebuchadnezzar saw his dream, and there was a massive statue. You'll remember it, the head of gold. And then each inferior metal working its way down to the feet and the toes of the statue. Inferior in value, but successively greater in strength as it works down the statue. Daniel 2, if you look at Daniel 2 and you were to go back and read it, you'll see, and I'm just going to recap it here, but I would encourage you, you connect these dots. Read these for yourself. Daniel 2 is clear that he interprets these four kingdoms in Nebuchadnezzar's dream or empires. He interprets that as four kingdoms in succession to each other, similar to chapter 7. So we're starting to see some parallels between what Daniel interpreted from Nebuchadnezzar and his own dream. If you've never sat through a certain Sunday morning service, this could be overwhelming for you. I hope that you don't run away. Okay, this is it's all weird, right? Like, well, this is what they talk about at church, beasts and four-headed leopards. And 
But it's scripture, and we, try to, we, we want to stay true to scripture. So please, if you're newer to church or newer to New City, please get to know us. You know, uh, Now in Daniel 7, he has a dream, and it tells us that it's still during the reign of a Babylonian king. Because it says it is in Belshazzar's reign. Belshazzar is the last king before the Medo-Persian. We already covered this stuff. The Medo-Persian comes in after Belshazzar, the last king of the empire. In Daniel 7, what we're just reading here, he dreams of four kings or kingdoms, each more ferocious than the last. That lines up with the metals, that they become inferior, but they're stronger as you move down the statue. Each beast is more ferocious in Daniel's dream as he goes through the dreams, and they're depicted with these crazy beasts that are not real animals. The Bible does not condone these weird morphed animals. That they are, These are symbols, okay? It would seem based on the text that these kingdoms are parallel to Daniel's two statues. And if you read most biblical scholars that have their weight and, and people are, are, they're trustworthy scholars would agree on this as well. I am no scholar. I'm not saying me and all the other scholars. No, that's not what I'm saying. But if you were to search this out, that's the general consensus as well. And what do they represent? We already mentioned, we've mentioned this already, but here are the four kingdoms. Babylon, Medo-Persian, the Greece, the, the Greco, the Grecian Empire, and the Roman Empires. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and the Roman Empires. How do we know this? One way we know this is Nebuchadnezzar's head of gold was very clearly Nebuchadnezzar himself. That's, that's a very easy interpretation. That was Babylon, represented by the king of Babylon at the time, which was Nebuchadnezzar. We know that that first head of gold was an empire, an evil empire. Compare this with verse 4 in Daniel's dream. Now, this is just cool stuff. I want you to see these parallels. Daniel chapter 7, verse 4, it says this, The first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground, made to stand on two feet like a man, and the man of a mind was given to it. Doesn't that also actually sound like Nebuchadnezzar? What happened to his life and his reign? Remember in chapter 4, we read about Nebuchadnezzar's glory and his sanity being stripped away from him like, like eagle's wings being plucked off of his back. But then in verse 34 of that same chapter, it describes his restoration. Chapter 4, verse 34 says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. So we compare that to Daniel 7 again, and it goes on to say that though the lion's wings were plucked off, it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand like a man, and the mind of a man was given. That is Nebuchadnezzar. That is Daniel being even more concise, saying this is the kingdom of Babylon. That was Babylon beginning with Nebuchadnezzar. And then we work our way down through the depiction of each of these beasts, and you can see that each one has a parallel to those four kingdoms in our history. Four incredibly great, powerful, evil empires that took over the known world in each of their days. So really briefly, the Medo-Persian Empire is represented by the bear. It says the bear was raised up on one side. Just a few little notes on that. Some scholars believe that the, this means that the bear is in stride. So lifted up on one side. The bear is kind of like ready to pounce. Lifted up on one side, moving forward, ready to devour. 
Others see that this could represent the dual nature of that kingdom, Medo-Persian Empire. And in fact, there was one of those, the Persian side rose to greater prominence than the Medes. That's in history. The bear with two sides, one side lifted higher than the other. It's the Medo-Persian Empire. Very, very cool here. Well, not so cool for these other empires, but it says it had three ribs in its mouth. Three ribs in its mouth, which means the bear is hungry. It means more than that. He's a lot more than that. Remember, these are the kings over kingdoms. So it has to be speaking of military conquest to devour the beasts that were before it. That's how these empires operated. An empire would come in and it would devour the previous empire. And it was no, it was no small thing that they would come in and seek to take conquest in a brutal, bloodthirsty way. Interestingly enough, the Medo-Persian Empire had three major conquests. It says there's three ribs in the bear's mouth. Medo-Persia did have three major conquests in history. He conquered Babylon in 539, the, the reign of Belshazzar. Conquered Lydia in 554 and Egypt in 520, 525. Why does that matter? Because Bible's accurate. There's three ribs in the bear's mouth. The Medo-Persian Empire had three major conquests taking over other parts of the world. Move on quickly. I don't want this to bore you or belabor you, so I'm, going to, I'm moving kind of quick. Some of you I'm seeing going, oh, that's cool. It is cool. It is awesome. God's Word is awesome. Daniel 5.28, this is what it says. You or your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians, and that night Belshazzar was dethroned and murdered. That was the fulfillment of that. Medo-Persian Empire did come in and annihilate the Babylonian Empire. Then, the leopard with four wings. What's that all about? So we have an already swift creature, a leopard, made even more swift with the addition of four wings, and to top it all off, it is four-headed. So picture this, and then send me a picture later. It'd be cool if the kids were working on something like this downstairs. We could have them all like... And if you Google Daniel 7 and you click on the little images for the, for the Google search, whoa. <laughs> Tattoo ideas maybe, I don't know. Weird, weird depictions of what people have thought in their minds that these things could look like, all right? But people have spent the time to try to figure it out. But it's, it's a imp- pretty incredible, impressive picture. This is the next empire in line. That makes sense. We went from Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire, and this is representing the next empire in line, and we see this play out in history as the Grecian Empire. So, one one commentator said this, Greece is aptly represented by this flying leopard, for its conquests were carried out with lightning speed, and it had an insatiable lust for territory. Alexander the Great invaded Asia Minor in 334 BC and within 10 short years, by the age of 32, had conquered the entire Medo-Persian Empire to the borders of India. According to legend, he then wept because there were no more lands to conquer. That was Alexander the Great. This is quoted by a commentator named Miller. So what about the four heads? The four heads, again, very, very cool, the the tightness of this accuracy here. History shows that after Alexander died in 323 B.C., the kingdom was split into how many parts? Four parts. 
The kingdom of Greece was split into four parts with four rulers. Then Daniel chapter 8 actually goes on to contain another vision that just accentuates these kingdoms again. So when we get into Daniel 8 and it talks about the ram and the horns, there's some very interesting things. But again, Greece is named very specifically in that next prophecy. I would encourage you to go forward and read chapter 8, but not right now. We'll focus on this, but make a note, read that later, you'll see it, and I'm sure it'll be impressive to you if you're a Bible student. Then the dream culminates with a beast that is far more greater than the other three, and this beast gets Daniel's attention, so much so that he's like, something's about this beast, I've got to figure this out. And then the little horn, of course, this is a ferocious, ferocious animal, if you want to call it that, beast, creature, iron teeth, ten horns, a mysterious little horn which gets much observation also in and of itself, and that's going to get covered in a later part of the series itself. What is that little horn? Prophecy experts, if you want to, I hate that term, uh, people who study prophecy, scholars, others have looked at that, and of course there's much debate on who that is. Um, biggest figure that comes up is that's got to be the Antichrist. All right, so we're going to cover that in a separate part of the series because that gets a lot of people's minds going. Who's the Antichrist? Is there an Antichrist? Did, was it this guy? Is it the, somebody in the future? We'll cover that at another part in the series. But this ferocious, incredible beast, this is parallel to Daniel 2, verse 34, or 43, excuse me. It says, as you saw the iron mixed with clay, this is the bottom part of Nebuchadnezzar's statue, as you saw the, the iron mixed with clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, that, I would underline that, in the days of those kings, that's the key, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. In the days of what kings? In the days of the kings represented by the feet and the ten toes. That's what he's talking about. That iron mixed with clay. And there's multiple thoughts and theories on who this is, of course. And, and I'm sure that some of you already have thoughts on who you think that might be. And that's fine. We all have our, where we're coming from. We're going to cover that in some more detail as we go. Um, and I'll share with you who I think that is right now. That's the Roman Empire. The ancient Roman Empire. Um, I believe that what we have as far as context, when Christ came, and there's a lot of keys in here. And we'll, and we'll cover that. But in the days of what kings? Those ten toes or ten nations. Or some even say ten being just that being a figurative number for a, a kingdom. Not necessarily even being specific. Hey, there's, there has to be ten. There may be. But the view which I hold to is that this could be none other than ancient Rome because it was into that turmoil of Rome... It was into all the Rome's mighty military conquests, its unmatched and unstoppable crushing power that subdued and oppressed people. It was into that nation that Christ did come. It was in that time of that empire, that ruling, dominant world empire. Christ came in that time. Daniel 7 says, in, in Daniel 2 says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. So there's some question marks we need to put in there. And we're gonna, we'll cover this as well, but when was that kingdom established? Has it already been established? Or are we still waiting for that kingdom to be established? Jesus came into that oppressive empire. He, Jesus, 
was the stone from heaven in Daniel chapter 2. Hewn without hands, hurled to the earth to crush the empires of man. Specifically, the residue and that final Roman Empire and the residue of the previous three. In that time, in that time when Christ came. That stone was Christ, and the way he would conquer was not like the other empires or rulers. The way he would conquer was not through physical force, but by his own death. He would conquer by his own death and by his resurrection, and by the preaching of his rule and his reign, that he is God, that he is king, and that he is the way. These are the, this was the message of Christ on earth when he preached the kingdom. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life that he would establish on this earth an everlasting kingdom in which righteousness dwells. Now, this is where confusion and disagreement can enter in. How someone interprets that final beast has far-reaching implications of how you see the entire world and the scheme of things playing out. Who that beast is, it would, depending on who that is, it changes things. How one interprets that stone which was thrown from heaven to crush the statue also has great implications. Because if that stone came from heaven and crushed the Roman Empire that was in the past, that's far different than a future stone coming from heaven to crush a future Roman Empire. Wouldn't you say? Far different things. But those are two views within Christianity. And there's a good chance that we have people in this room that believe each of those things are a mixture of those. And we can all still love Jesus together. Right? But you have to admit major implications for believing one or the other. I am on that first camp. I do believe that this happened in the past and that Christ has already established his kingdom. And we've already been covering this over and over and over again in Daniel, have we not? The consistency of Daniel in the context of who reigns and the king, who's the king, and who, who has dominion today. And I'll share some things with you as well that I hope will help to establish that. Does Jesus rule today, or are we still waiting for him to rule? I really think it boils down to that sort of a question. Does he rule right now, or are we still waiting? Are we waiting for Daniel 2 to be fulfilled, or has it already been fulfilled? This is relevant to us because we live in a world similar to Daniel still. This is not irrelevant just because it was written in the 5th century or 6th century B.C. We live in a world similar to Daniel in that inferior kingdoms of men still seem to have dominion. I mean, can you imagine what it was like to be Daniel and live during those empires or that empire? And to know this, this prophecy of worse and worse empires existing for his people, the Jewish people, and hearing prophecies that there will be a crushing of the saints of the Most High. What would that have been like to be Daniel and have that interpretation to know that, that those words were true and sealed, this will happen? It's often easy to think that the empires of our day, so to speak, there's been, by the way, there's no empire and hasn't been since Rome anything like it. Nothing like it. I, one, one, for instance, is even oftentimes our, our minds go to somebody like Hitler. Hitler's reign was months you know, and it's not that he did a small amount of work. In ru- in ru- it was a big, it was an evil, evil thing that he did, but he did not establish a world empire. There's been nothing since Rome like Rome or Greece or the Medo-Persian or the Babylonian Empire. I believe Christ did something and wrecked that statue. 
I believe that he, took, he came on a conquest and he accomplished his mission. And he upset the kingdoms of darkness. And now guess who's filling the earth? God's people. We're filling the earth. And God's people are taking conquest, not by force or violence, but the same way that Jesus did. By humility, by preaching the kingdom, by telling people about that kingdom. But we've had empires in our history, ferocious, so evil, bloodthirsty men ruling in this world that hate the righteousness of God and his son, Jesus Christ. We've seen it, and we see it even today. When we look at the theology of the kingdom of God in Scripture, what we see is a plan. A plan. We see a plan in place that begins with God and unfolds perfectly over time. Have we not established that already in Daniel? A perfect plan that God unfolds. God is in charge. He sees everything. And from the beginning, he deposes kings and he sets up kings. He's sovereign. He has final authority. Daniel 2, excuse me, Daniel chapter 2 told us that in the days of those kings, a rock would crush the culminating work of four evil empires influenced by Satan, for sure, those empires, and that that rock would become a great mountain and fill the earth. That's part of what that prophecy would look like, is that in the crushing of that empire, there would be, that stone would be established here and then grow. That's a beautiful thought. That that king and that kingdom, which we believe to be Christ, came and did what he did, and that mountain is growing, or that stone is growing. When, when did that happen? Again, that's the question. So think about that. When did that happen? So Daniel 7 being a parallel dream, which most scholars would agree, gives us such a hopeful, optimistic view of God's kingdom And I believe it confirms that this was already fulfilled in the resurrection or the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. So let's read on. Look at verse verse 9 of chapter 7. This is after the description of all the beasts. And Daniel in his dream says, As I looked, thrones were placed at the ancient, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And a thousand thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. And the books were opened. We're peering into the throne room of God. Appearing into God's throne room. That's God the Father, the Ancient of Days. He's seated and he's surrounded by what? Millions, millions of angels serving him. Picture this in your head. The, the, the God of the universe on his throne with eyes to see everywhere and, and perfect judgment, fire coming from his throne, white representing the purity of God, the perfection of God, the sinlessness of God. And there the books are open. Who opens the books? The perfect judge of the universe God himself the ancient of days millions of angels serving him and he judges who he judges that final beast he judges in this context he judges that little horn who spoke blasphemous words along with the other three beasts that were mentioned in this context in Daniel chapter 7 now there is a view that sees this as the final antichrist and a new Roman empire that is still in our future and again there are 
beautifully genuine Christians who believe that viewpoint. No dog on any of that. But to be completely honest, I don't see it that way. And the reason is because I believe this text can be interpreted by the timing of the kingdom of God coming to this earth. Again, that's the question. When did he establish his kingdom? Is it still future or has it already happened? And when is Christ, the Messiah, given dominion? Because that's what's being mentioned here in the text. When was he given dominion? If he does not yet have dominion, this, I will secede, is still in our future. I think that's the key. Again, and if you want to talk with me about this later and have questions, later's the time. Please don't interject now. <laughs> that would be messy. Um, but if he does have dominion, and if he is the sovereign ruler right now, and if Christ is enthroned as king of kings right now, then it's very fitting to say that this has already happened based on what? Daniel 2 and the stone that came down to crush the ancient Roman Empire and the three Rome empires that were still residual from their day. Does that make sense? If you guys following that? Look at verse 13, which I believe is actually the pinnacle of Daniel's dream. Daniel's looking at this, and I, I can't even imagine now as he sees what is about to unfold before him in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. Amen to that. That is conquering victory, final and sure, right? Now, whether it has already happened or it's yet future, praise God. Praise God, because this is true. I'm persuaded from Scripture that this is none other than the coronation of Jesus after the ascension. That he died, and he rose again, and he ascended to heaven to the Father. When he enters the throne room of his Father, who's the Father? The Ancient of Days that we just read about. He was seated at the right hand of his Father, the Ancient of Days. Now, this is the very scripture that Jesus himself quoted when he was standing before the high priest. Jesus would often call himself the Son of Man. And the, the phrase, Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter 7. In Mark 14, verse 62, Jesus said, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Where is he coming to? A very common interpretation of Jesus' text is that he's speaking of his second coming when he comes with the clouds. We picture the days when the disciples were surrounding Jesus after the Great Commission, and he goes up into heaven, and they're watching with their eyes, their eyes bug-eyed and their mouth wide open, and they're told, don't you worry, he'll come in a likewise manner. He was taken up into the clouds, he will come back. So here we see a conversation here about clouds with heaven, and we, we are tempted to think that that must mean the second coming. But again, Jesus is quoting Daniel here. He's speaking of that time, the clouds of heaven. Where is he coming to? Daniel says he came to the Ancient of Days. Daniel tells us that he went to the Ancient of Days, not in this moment that he came to earth. He is going to come to earth. He is going to come on the clouds in a similar manner. He will strike his feet on this earth, and he will be here, and he will establish the forever kingdom, the eternal state. New Jerusalem will come and be here. 
It's going to happen. But I don't believe that that's what this is talking about. When was he given dominion and glory and a kingdom? In other words, when was he recognized as king over his kingdom? When was Jesus himself recognized as such? It was after his conquest to conquer sin through his death and resurrection. It was after that. Remember what he said before ascending to the Father? Think about this in context to all that we've read and all that we're seeing here in Daniel 7 and this view of heaven, of him coming in before the Ancient of Days. But look at Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. Jesus said these words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been what? Given to me. It was given to him. Jesus claimed in Matthew 28 that then and there he had the authority given to him. It was what was happening in this span of time between Christ's resurrection and then his ascension was his coronation as king, him being recognized finally as who he is, king of kings, given dominion. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm so glad that Jesus told us that he was given dominion before he gave us the Great Commission. Aren't you glad? Here, go into all the world and make disciples, but I don't rule the world yet. Can you imagine? But think about the power, the strength, the confidence to go, to be those disciples. You want us to overtake the world with the gospel? Yeah. Well, all authority in heaven and earth has already been given to me. Go in my power. Go in my authority. And we have that same commission today. Isn't that hopeful? Isn't it hopeful to know that we can go and live out the Great Commission in confidence that God has already coronated Christ as king, the king of the universe, and that he is ruling right now? He rules today. I believe that with all my heart. Could I be persuaded? Yeah, because I don't want to be <laughs> like that. Like, I could never be persuaded. But I believe this. I believe that this has already taken place. Daniel 7, verse 14. Just think about it again. I want to read it again in context. And it was given, and to him was given dominion. To him was given dominion. When? When he came to the Ancient of Days. When he went into the throne room of heaven at his ascension, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Scripture doesn't just give us one pinpointed definition of what the kingdom is. A lot of this is for me to just kind of lay the groundwork of us thinking about the kingdom and how we live as citizens of his kingdom right now. Is the kingdom of God present? Is the kingdom of God future? Is it within us? Is the kingdom of God the church? Yes, 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 and yes. It's all of those things. We don't give, we're not just given, well, here's what the kingdom is, and just go with that. We have such a vast array of things that help us make up the definition or the understanding of what the kingdom is. The Hebrew word for kingdom is um, first defined as this, as a rule and power. A rule and power. It's, it's also able to be interpreted as a place or territory. So when you think of kingdom, you think of a, of a territory. The kingdom of... So-and-so, Aslan, 
yeah, whatever, um, other kings that are still reigning in our world today. There's a territory, and they go no further beyond that. But the first definition is the rule and the reign of that king. And so when we see that word come up and over and over again in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament, and then we see the understanding of it fulfilled in the New Testament, I think what we're to, to think about is not a territory or a people first, but that the kingdom of God is his sovereign reign. The kingdom is Jesus' reign. That's the primary message of Jesus when he came here, wasn't it? The kingdom of God. He preached the kingdom. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. This mattered to him. Some familiar words that might help maybe breathe some fresh life into some co very common scriptures. Jesus answered Nicodemus in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's not saying you can't see Jerusalem. You can't see this territory. You can't even see the rule and reign of Christ until you're born again and your eyes are open to see that Jesus is sovereign. You must be born again to see the king and to see his kingdom. You need to have new eyes. You need to be given birth from heaven. God must do a work on your heart. Not a place, but a rule and a reign. John the Baptist, the prophet and the forerunner of Christ, came on the scene and he preached the kingdom. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. Famous words. John the Baptist, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Think about that in relation to what we're talking about today. What does he mean? What's, what's at hand? What's coming? What is it that's on its way? For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Jesus Christ, the one whom John the Baptist was the forerunner of, is the kingdom of heaven in the ultimate sense because he's the king of heaven. Because he left heaven and came to, to this earth to suffer and die and to be coronated officially, openly, as king. To be coronated as king. He came to accomplish the mission of the kingdom, which was what? What's the overall purpose and mission of the kingdom? It's to purchase for himself a people, a bride, a church that would build his kingdom here on earth. We have that commission now to preach the kingdom. The king has given us the mission to bring the kingdom, his rule and reign about in the hearts of men and women all around the world. He's given us that commission. What is the mission? That Christ would rule and reign in people's hearts. When someone submits and surrenders to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in their heart, they what? They're part of the kingdom. They, you, you become part of the kingdom when? When he rules and reigns in your heart. Praise God that he's sovereign over that because we are stubborn, stubborn people and we love to rule our own lives. We're given that commission. The church is told to go and, and to do this, to, bring, to build the kingdom here on earth, not in the way that the world builds the kingdom, but the way that Christ has commissioned us to. But it's not a quick establishment, is it? It's a slow, painstaking process, but a steady one. It's a slow and steady process of seeing his kingdom spread around this earth. It's, it's a process that's more like a mustard seed. Jesus used that language when he even said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Isn't that interesting? This is what it's like. It's like a small seed that grows over time. He also used the word leaven. 
to describe the kingdom. It's like leaven that fills the dough, not suddenly. Any bakers in the room throw dough, uh, leaven in the dough, and it just goes, poof. No, <laughs> you let it sit, and it permeates. And you don't even get to see it. You just watch the results, and you watch it overtake the dough and have its effect. That's what the kingdom is like. That's what it's like to be kingdom people and to preach the gospel into a dark, sinful world. You don't see quick processes. You see one person here and one person there and a group of people here and God rescuing the world through his gospel, through his people. Over time, it spreads and it has. No one could look at Christianity and say it's been unsuccessful so far. It has been incredibly successful. Has it not since Christ gave the commission? Where we have gone and where we have reached and where the gospel has gone and how societies have changed and how marriages are affected and how governments are affected by surrendering to the king. Isn't that beautiful? The kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? It is God's sovereign rule and reign over all the heavens and the earth. It's the sovereign rule of God, rule and reign over all the heavens and the earth. King Jesus at this very moment has dominion, and he has called us, his church, to pray. Again, a common, common word that we think of all the time, he taught us to pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean to pray, your kingdom come? Oftentimes we think of, again, what? The second coming. Speed up your second coming, Lord. But there's a now, that, that, I think it includes that, because we want to see that. But there's something that we pray now, God, let your rule and reign be further established on this earth as people surrender and bow to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where is God's sovereign rule obeyed the most right now? It's, it's obeyed the most in heaven. Is it not? The myriads and the myriads of angels of God doing the will of God and worshiping him perfectly. That's where the will of God is done right now perfectly in every single way. In, 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 the, in the sense of the law, the righteousness. And we have been instructed to pray that his rule and reign be realized here. And that happens as we live obediently to the king and teach new disciples and disciple all the nations to observe the king's commands. That was in the commission. To observe the king's ways. To forsake worldly and sinful ways. Ways that are part of this world's system and kingdom. To forsake those and to come under the loving and gracious rule of Christ and to admit what? That he is king. To admit, that's ultimately what the goal of the, of the gospel proclamation is. Is that one would bow their hearts to Christ. I heard it this way and some of you will hear this and think it's familiar and, that, and I, I just loved it. We're, we're, we are not campaigning for Jesus to get, his, to get people to vote for him. Right? If, if evangelism feels that way, then I think we're doing it wrong. Vote for Jesus. No, he's already king. He already got it. You just need to bow your heart to him. Right? So we're, we don't, we're not going out peddling something, selling something that isn't valuable. We're, we're going with the proclamation of the gospel, of the kingdom, of the good news that Jesus is king. And that's a joyful thing. That is an incredible thing. And I pray that God is maybe even just stirring your heart to be just more excited and more confident in the kingdom that you're a part of. We, though, must learn to live in this now and not yet mentality. That's the reality of this. It's a now and not yet. 
mentality. The kingdom is here in one sense, but we are waiting, aren't we? We're waiting for another piece. We've seen the coronation, I believe, but we're waiting for the inauguration. Or excuse me, the inauguration is to take place, but we're waiting for the consummation, excuse me, the consummation of that kingdom. That day when Christ returns. When he returns and new Jerusalem comes down with him and he sets his feet on this earth again and we enter that final eternal state, that day will come. Praise God. That day will come when he is here. Again, physically. And we rule and reign with him for eternity. Now, the view that I've presented today, it does also alter how you see the millennial kingdom. And we're going to cover that again in another whole topic. What are the various views of that thousand-year reign? Is it literal? Is it figurative? What does it mean? Is it now or are we waiting for it? Again, I believe a lot of that is interpreted by the text that we just read. Does Jesus have dominion now? Until then, Scripture says that we wait. We wait as priests of our God. We don't wait as weak, peasly little people without a king of kings, but we wait as people who have been given a commission, and Scripture says we wait as priests. And I say that because I want to refer to this text, Revelation 1.6. Revelation 1.6, listen to this. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom... He made us a kingdom. Look at that word there. Think about this again in the context of what we're reading and and talking about. By his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. When he established his reign, he established a commission. Focus on this. This is our application for today. Where does this all go? What do we do with all of this? He established a commission, I believe, when he established his reign here and was given dominion and was told in fulfillment of even Psalm 2, the nations will be his inheritance which is why we have the mission and the commission to go into the world and make disciples of who? The nations, all the nations. And we have to carry this out until the end. So moms, dads, grandparents, people with careers, single people, every city and in every neighborhood, everywhere you go. And you go with his authority. You go with the authority of Christ. You have no need to be timid. Based on what we've read and what we're talking about, there's no need to be timid or fearful or reluctant or ashamed about this gospel. There's no need to be timid about the message of the kingdom because we know who the king is. There will be hardship, and oftentimes that's the thing that causes us to think he doesn't have dominion because there's often hardship. How could he have rule and reign and dominion now if hard things happen in my life and around the world. But we know, based on an abundance amount of Scripture, that God is sovereign and glorified in the suffering of His people. He's glorified. It is not beyond God to be on the throne and also to purify 
and allow his church and allow his people to go through hardship and suffering and hard days in order to increase their faith and their dependence on him who is king over all eternity. There will be hardship. Evil is still at large in many, many ways to our perspective. But evil is on a leash. It is ultimately on a leash. It's on God's leash. The kingdom is growing. Do you believe that? That the kingdom of God is growing or is it waning? Now, if you look at the stats and you say, and I heard this the other day, well, 11 churches every month close or every day. I don't know what it is. If you look at that and you just go by the, the standards of what a church is to our culture and you say, well, church's doors are closing, so the kingdom must be losing, not a chance. Not a chance. The kingdom of God is growing. God's plan is working, not failing. Why? Because Christ is on the throne. And he has established his kingdom. And there will no be, be no end to his rule and to his dominion. Jesus is the king and he rules from heaven. So, those who have already surrendered to the king are his church. If you've surrendered here today to the king, you are his church. His plan A for spreading the good news of the kingdom to the world. We are that plan, brothers and sisters. And that's a, that's a high order. It's a daunting thing, but again, Christ gave us the commission. Christ the king gave us the commission. We are to spread the good news of the kingdom to the world. And I pray that this changes our outlook on the world today. This whole understanding of kingdom and what it is and who's in charge and who has dominion should change how you see the news. It should change how your fear, how you are potentially gripped with fear at the talk of nuclear war. It should change how you see how culture is changing with the tides of liberal theology and this and that and all the definitions that we know and stand on Scripture are being threatened. It should change how you see that, not that we're losing, but that we must continue to work. That we must continue to preach and be the salt and light of Christ in this world. Not to see the gloom and darkness as the final answer, as so many often do, but to remember that the rock from heaven that crushed the statue and brought it to nothing is a reality today. That same rock that crushed the statue of Nebuchadnezzar is the kingdom of God, and it is a reality today. Empires have risen and fallen, and there will be many more attempts for that to take place. I don't know how long we'll be here. I will not try to predict the end of the day or when the rapture is or when the second coming is. That's not what it's about. I do believe that we are here to preach the kingdom and to affect this world with the gospel. To affect the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is your commission and my commission. Take it. Hold on to it. Live it out. When you live that out, you know what you're showing? You're showing that you have surrendered to the king. That he is your king, and you believe that he is your king. Jesus does reign, and a day will come when the last enemy will be destroyed. What is the last enemy? Death. I don't think that's happened yet. That's still in our future. That happens at the resurrection. When you and I receive our final eternal state bodies, where in our new bodies, new creations, we live and dwell with Christ. We see him face to face, and forever we will be with the Lord. Forever. That hasn't happened yet. We are waiting for that day, and it, it is an amazing day that's coming. But in the meantime, we go and we preach the gospel.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are in charge. Thank you for your plan. Thank you that even through this message, um, Lord, work out in people's minds and hearts, Lord, those things that are ultimately of your word and that are truth and concrete, and those things that could potentially be even just my opinion. (laughs) But God, we are weak people, and we see through a glass dimly, and these things are difficult things. And I thank you that one thing we do know is that we can all agree that Christ suffered and died for us, your church, your people, and that all who come to you by faith will not be turned away, and that the blood of Jesus is the only payment for sin, and that when we repent of our sin and turn to you, oh, you make us new, you forgive us, you change our lives, you reconcile us to God through faith in Jesus. I do pray that our minds would be changed in many, many ways about the kingdom and how it operates here in this world, that we would not be weak, timid people when it comes to the preaching of the gospel or the proclamation of the kingdom or the understanding of who wins and who's in charge. No matter who is set up on an earthly throne, help us to remember that you are enthroned above all of them, that you are at the right hand of the Father, that you see all things that you have dominion. You have been given a dominion and a kingdom and a power that is without end. Help us to live under that reality. I pray you'd remind us in those days where we are feeling crushed by the world that we, our mind would go right, right away to that stone that was hewn without hands, without human influence, from heaven crushing the kingdoms of man and establishing a forever rule here. I believe that is through your church. So, God, we go with more confidence, with the power of the Holy Spirit, into our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, as ambassadors of Christ, as priests and priestesses, representing our God to the people who have yet to bow the knee to Jesus. Help us to go, Lord. Help us to see much fruit. And in the days of waiting, Lord, as the mustard seed seems still so small and the leaven seems to hardly have permeated anything, help us to remember that it is a slow, continual process. And that is your plan. Give us patience, Lord. Give us perseverance. Help us in this, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. at bathnewcity.church.